1: Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show.
2: Hello and welcome to History Hack. We're going all things Second World War nautical and boaty today. So as you can imagine, I know nothing about this one. So I brought along a friend. I'm delighted to welcome the wonderful Chris Sams as my wingman on this one. Chris, what are we talking about today Ah. and who do we have with us?
3: sorry my thing completely froze for a minute uh
2: <laughs> this is why we edit my dear friend
3: i'm glad i'm glad we do it's just as <laughs> you started speaking it froze <laughs> uh, uh what, what was my prompt
2: <laughs> yeah, okay so who, who have you got with this today and what are we discussing <laughs> i'm leaving this in now because this is great well, <laughs> they know me it's really
3: new now yeah me trying to be professional um yeah, hi Matt, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing really well. Uh, so today we have, um, I'm really excited about today's, uh, we have, uh, it's about, obviously it's about my favourite topic, and with one of my favourite people, as we have uh, Nick Hewitt, who is a 20th century naval historian, who has written about uh, German cruiser warfare in the First World War, coastal convoys in World War II, and, his, and the role of HMS Belfast during D-Day. He's appeared as an expert in uh, documentaries, and has... Um, uh, and has worked as a historian at IWM and Portsmouth
2: Dockyard. Mick, welcome to History Hack. How are you? So Hello. Nice yeah, great, pleasure. It's my, my first time, so yeah, really looking forward to this. And and we're doing like I said, I know nothing about this one, so I'm going to hand over to Chris to fire off with the first questions. What are we talking about, Chris? And what are we going to be quizzing Nick upon? Well,
3: today. Uh, We'll be talking about the Battle of Cape Matapan, or Cape Matapan, sorry, which is um, uh, was quite a pivotal battle in uh, the Mediterranean, I, I think so, in uh, the early stages of World War Two between uh, Great Britain and Italy.
1: So, a great story. Can't wait to get into it.
3: Absolutely. Um, <laughs> so, so, to sort of start off, March nineteen forty one to set the scene, the Axis powers have dominance over Europe. Russia is still allied to Germany. France is now Vichy. Why are Britain now concentrating on the Mediterranean? Why is that so important? And what is the state of play by March 1941?
1: Yeah, so that's, that's a great question, Chris. It's, um, why are the British fighting there? That's very easy because it's somewhere where they think they can fight. Um, and it, the, the, the Mediterranean strategy is very much driven by Churchill. Uh, the Admiralty at one point is proposing actually giving up the Mediterranean. It's obviously a key a key route for Britain. It connects out to the Indian Ocean and out to India. But there are other ways around. You can long ones that tie up a lot of shipping, but you can go around the Cape of Good Hope. Um, the Mediterranean is essentially a very, very difficult place to operate with um, the fall of France. And if you think about your geography for a minute, um, which is hard to do in this format, but let's do it anyway. Let's give it a go. Um, I remember taking, I took a, a group, I was part of a battlefield tour um, for IWM out to El Alamein, and I did a paper on this for for a bunch of military historians. And I tried to get them to just, they needed to stand in the sea and look at the land. And nearly all the coast is hostile in the Mediterranean, or it's kind of not really hostile, but technically it isn't, but it is. So you've got, obviously, Vichy technically neutral, very hostile, Um, You've got Italy, which is a hostile coast. You've got the Italian Empire and the Vichy French colonial territories across the whole of North Africa up to Egypt. You've got Spain, which is a fascist dictatorship and also not very friendly. So it's a really difficult operating environment. And the key threat there is the Italians. Um, The British went to war and it's really important to remember this. The British went to war thinking that the Second World War would be a replay of the First World War. And they'd be fighting with a powerful French ally. They knew the Italians had probably changed sides and they might be on the other side. But the plan was that the French would take care of the Mediterranean. The British would have nothing but a token presence there and the British would handle the Germans. And that was all great. So for naval strategy, the fall of France is absolutely catastrophic. And so you can see why the Admiralty's first response is to go, OK, look, we can't do this. With, we haven't got the ships. Um, our bases are places like Malta, which is hideously isolated. Gibraltar's at the wrong end and is joined to Spain. How can we do this? And Churchill is determined that, that Britain will fight in the Mediterranean because it's the only option they've got. The bomber force isn't built up enough to to, to carry out strategic bombing the German fleet is is a commerce raiding fleet It not there to fight another Jutland, and the god knows the British army is not going to be going back into France anytime soon so the only place they can really take aggressive action and take the war to the enemy is the Mediterranean and to be fair the Admiralty's protests are you know are pretty short and they, they get on with the job as soon as they can
3: yeah and, uh, I suppose again with the hostile coastline as well you've got the um if you've got coastline or with the Mediterranean is surrounded. You've got land-based aircraft, which are always a problem for, uh, you have indeed.
1: That's yeah. a problem. And, and the Italian Air Force, and, and at this stage in the war, we are talking about the Italian Air Force. The Germans don't really get there till later, but the Italian Air Force is huge. Um, and you know, it's, it's got all the torpedo bombers. It's got, um, it, it's got all sorts of stuff that are a really genuine threat. And that there's an awful lot of hindsight that we apply to the Italians. And I think it might be quite interesting to talk about that there's there's some hindsight and some unhelpful stereotyping i think um the italians don't always yeah. have the best equipment sometimes they do um their ships are very good actually they're just designed for a specific purpose every nation makes well you know this chris as well as i do every nation makes choices when they build ships are you going to go yeah. for big guns are you going to go for heavy armor you're going to go for speed they're a compromise. The Italians tended to go for speed, so they had these very fast, very beautiful ships actually, but tended to be a bit under but they still had the appropriate guns. They've got a lot of them, particularly in cruisers, which will be important when we get to Matapan. And they have this huge land-based air force. Aircraft types rapidly become outclassed. But again, in 1940, Italian aircraft are probably no worse or more or less capable than anything the British have
3: got. Um, yeah. you know, the SM, seven, seven, SM seventy nine was pretty pretty decent medium yeah, bomber. Yeah, the SM
1: seventy nine again, it, the same problem to an extent that the Germans have. That the Italians start the war with a very capable. The SM seventy nine is a, a twin engine bomber. It can be used for level bombing, torpedo bombing. It's great in nineteen thirty nine, nineteen forty, nineteen forty one. Even they're still using it in forty two, forty three, and then it's starting to struggle. But in this environment, it's a perfectly good aircraft, and they have quite a lot of them. Yeah,
2: I'm. Yeah, I'm interested by the sort of pol- the politics of Italy, because I'm, 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 I'm wading my way through Richard Overy's new Blood and, Blood and Runes, which covers the sort of political aspects of the, the war of empires. What sort of political direction are, are Italy taking in the Mediterranean at this point? Because they are seizing upon an opportunity, I think, is a is a polite way of um, putting their they're sort of
1: they are and i think it's it's interesting isn't it it's it it is a war of political opportunism for italy whereas for britain it's a war of uh, well it's an existential war actually for the british empire and and once the british start to think about that mediterranean theater as part of that existential threat i think that makes it very difficult for the italians and and the way they use their battle fleet is really interesting and that that is heavily influenced by Mussolini like like a little bit like Hitler like many land animals he has a, an interesting approach his fleet is as much a, a kind of shiny toy um, and something to be brought out at the peace conference or to be used as a threat the, the Royal Navy tends to think of these things as assets that you use and you get them beaten up and you might lose them but you still need to use them and that's a fundamental difference and it's it's really This is where the stereotyping comes in, I think. It's it's a fundamental difference when it comes to the battle fleet, the big ships, the battleships. Um, If you look at the way the Italians operate their smaller escort ships, they operate them relentlessly with extreme courage and they lose a lot of them. Um, They are much more timid with the battle fleet because there is that political influence on how it's used. And also they are chronically short of fuel. And that remains a problem for the Italians all the way through the war. Um, You know, they they don't have access to the kind of synthetic oil plants that the Germans are 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 using. They don't, they don't, you know, they they have to get their oil from Germans, basically. So they're always, always struggling. And um, small escorts you can run and they're not very thirsty larger battleships are much more thirsty so the the two limiting factors are political direction Mussolini is is quite nervous and that gets much more so after Matapan, which is one of the reasons why it's so important but also they're expensive and costly to run and it's difficult to take them out so so it's not that the Italian sailors lacked um capability or courage they had good and bad senior officers just like every other navy did um but they did have these limiting factors that were imposed on them that made it very difficult for them. Set against that, they had numbers, and, and that land-based air that Chris talked about. So it's quite an even match, in a way, in that the, the British are fewer in numbers. Their ships are older, actually. The British ships in the Mediterranean are are older. Um, some modernised some Jutland. not, the to the First World War. Sorry, Chris, you're coming in there.
3: Yeah, uh, yeah sorry, I was saying, uh, three of them were at Jutland, at least. So. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean they're, they're very old ladies, but the Queen Elizabeth class battleships are hugely, hugely capable, and I think probably probably might as best you don't don't get Chris and I on ship geekery because we'll we'll be take up the whole thing. <laughs> but they are phenomenal ships for for my money, the best battleships ever built for the Royal Navy. Um, but you know, getting on
2: in years by this point. Even I know what a Queen Elizabeth
3: class <laughs> battleship is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um... Yeah, I was, was going to ask about Italian stereotypes, but we've covered that. It was nice line about Captain Bertarelli. But, uh, okay, so <laughs> yes. um, take, looking at the. <laughs> Everybody's it anyway. <laughs> in, my, in my question, i was saying, you know, they have got this popular, we said we've got this popular memory of the Italians surrendering en masse to, uh, to like, lone Tommies in the desert, Captain Bertarelli in a low, low you know, I'm here for the beautiful ladies. Um, and my granddad, who was at Salerno, said, they were anything but. Um, yeah, but you get, this, you get this, this memory of, of the Italians being useless. But um, you know, I, mean, the, I think uh, the
1: only thing you could say about the you know the, the stereotype of the vast numbers surrendering to the Lone Tommy is they were uselessly led in in North Africa, and that's what leads yeah. to that. I mean, they're appallingly led and appallingly equipped. Um, and I think you know we could draw parallels with some of what's going on today around around how that some of, some of that stuff happens. So, but but at sea, certainly they were they were. They were pretty capable, actually. Yeah, you just,
2: you just have to um, look at the sort of the preambles up to the Battle of Bardia in in early forty one as well. That the the advances and the the um, gains that they'd made were hard fought and well fought. Yeah, um, yeah. Bef- before that turnaround. by some. That's, but that's land based. Yeah. We're not we're not going to take it with leg
1: infantry. I think is the takeaway from that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just a bad decision, really. <laughs> And, and also, to be fair, you know the, the maritime communication lines across the Mediterranean are what this is all about, and and actually that's where the Italian army is is a victim of the success at Matapan and what falls out from that, as much as the Italian navy is, uh, because it becomes pretty tricky to um, to supply across um, the Mediterranean. If you look at those swings and. Um, the swings of the land battle in the Mediterranean—they're directly linked to what's going on at sea. When things are going well for the Axis at sea, then their army manages to advance because they get fuel, um, and they get trucks, and they get all those other things. When things are going badly at sea, then they tend to have to go
2: backwards.
3: Yeah, um, yeah. Don't don't get me on Rommel. Uh- <laughs> yeah, we won't do that. We won't do
2: that. Well, that's another um, podcast, but- not this one. Come on, Chris. <laughs> yeah,
3: I, know, I know. Um, Just just to go off topic, just one slight bit about bad bad equipment uh my granddad told me that the italian infantry used to tighten the bayonets with butterfly clips and oh, um
1: it's,
3: it. it's a good thing that they did because he got bayoneted but the guy hadn't tightened his, um bayonet so it just slipped up his chest and didn't go through so he survived so thankfully they did have b- bad equipment <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah but, okay but uh, looking looking at this balance of power then um churchill's often known for a lot of um politely strategic faux pas and uh, disagreeing with his commanders in the field and the admiralty um so uh, with his was would we say that his refusal in this case is um it's actually quite strategically sound
1: yeah and i think i think that's i mean anyone who's read kaiser's pirates will know i'm not an admirer of churchill and his relationship with the navy i don't think he understands it properly but actually the decision not to give up the mediterranean that is not that's that's exactly the kind of strategic political decision that the prime minister is supposed to make. It's when he gets into that middle ground, what in land warfare would be called the operational. So he doesn't really interfere tactically, but he does interfere operationally around you know decisions around Norway. We'll get onto Greece in a little bit. Um, that I think he has no place doing. He hasn't got the knowledge or the experience or the understanding of of, of how the, how not just the Navy, but all the services work to do that. But actually that big decision is the right decision and it's the, and he's right to make it. That's the PM's job. Um, so he tells the military to get on. And actually that's the system working because the Navy go, okay, we've given a recommendation. The political leadership have told us that they're, they're not prepared to accept that. We'll get on and do the job and see how we get on.
3: And, um, it ultimately the job falls down to, uh, Admiral Andrew Cunningham, yes. um, as, as the dude, as the guy, guard- as the dude. That's the man
2: on <laughs> <in> the spot. <laughs> he, was, he was a dude.
1: He was a dude, <laughs> Andrew Cunningham. I'm happy with that label. <laughs> I am a huge, huge fan of Cunningham. I think Cunningham is, he's been touted as the greatest admiral since Nelson. I, I I'm, how do you do those lists? I don't know. He's fighting mm. a very different war to Nelson, but I, he is a great, great admiral and he certainly has that fighting, aggressive, capable tradition. Um, he's, he he grows up in destroyers, Cunningham, which is really interesting. He's a destroyer admiral. He spends the first world war in destroyers. One of the reasons why the Royal Navy of the Second World War is so phenomenally capable is because it's um, it's junior, its senior officers were junior officers in the First World War, and they learned a lot from some of the things that perhaps didn't go right in the First World War. And I think we know those things didn't go right in the First World War because they hadn't fought a war for a hundred years. So you know, there's a l- constant learning. And Cunningham is one of a group of senior sailors who take this with them. But the interesting thing about him is when he gets the battle fleet, he's driving a battle fleet like he would a destroyer flotilla. I mean, he's operating them like destroyers. And that really makes the difference. It's kind of fast paced. It's aggressive. He's doing stuff with them that you shouldn't be able to do. Um, he's completely, I mean, the, there are absolute parallels with, with Chutland and Chris. So we should be careful not to go down that rabbit hole, but yeah. But, you know, there are lessons that are learnt from Jutland that Cunningham absolutely applies in Matapan to great success. So yeah, I mean, he's a hugely, hugely capable Admiral. The interesting thing actually is, um, Churchill doesn't like him. <laughs> um, Churchill tolerates him in the Mediterranean. I, I think because Cunningham is, is, doesn't get pushed around and is very prone to speaking his mind and Churchill doesn't really like that. Um, and Churchill fights tooth and nail later in the war when, when, um, Tudley Pound dies and the position of first sea lord comes up and the navy want Cunningham and Churchill really doesn't want him. And in the end, there's this kind of famous, I'm paraphrasing now, but there's a famously huffy quote where he goes, Oh, you can have your Cunningham if you want him. And, and you know, it's, it's not an easy relationship, but he's the right man in the right place at the right time. And he does a phenomenal job in the Mediterranean because the only way you can take on those kind of odds. Is by being that aggressive, and and he beats them. He beats the Italian senior commanders in their minds as much as he beats them at sea. I think.
3: Yeah, because he's um he's had quite an, an impressive uh, career so far during the Second World War, um against uh, against the French and the Italians.
1: Yeah, so you get into the you know the the horrific business with the French at the start of the war, Operation Catapult. So. That's a key moment, actually, because um just to to rewind a little um france falls um the British are intensely worried about the French fleet, and I think this is another thing that's been chewed over with with hindsight far too much. Yes, it is a political statement, the decision to to um, get very aggressive with the, the, the Vichy French warships. It is a political statement. It's Churchill signalling to the United States that Britain is serious about this war. But they are also genuinely worried that actually the Germans will march in and take those ships and that, that there will be German or Italian crewed ships, French ships in the Mediterranean, elsewhere. French fleet's very capable, some very, very good ships in the French fleet. It would have changed the naval balance of power at a stroke. And because they've conquered the country, you know, they've got the spares, they've got the the blueprints, they've got the ability to operate them. And actually, I think the the more interesting hindsight question is why the Germans didn't do it. It's not like they weren't ruthless enough. I'm quite surprised even now that they didn't at least make a play for some of the warships and say you need to hand these over. After all, that's what happened to them. In nineteen eighteen. So it's a genuine fear that there will be rearmed French ships with German and Italian crews doubling the size of the hostile um, naval presence in the Mediterranean. Um, so this awfully ruthless decision is made, particularly um uh, over, over in the uh, west in Murs el Kabir, where um you know, efforts to get the French to come out and hand over their ships fail so that they are fired on and there's horrendous loss of life. Um, Cunningham actually handles it rather more diplomatically and is able to, with a great effort, persuade the French ships that are a much smaller French force that are in Alexandria in a much more difficult position, to be fair. They're in the middle of a British harbour, right under the guns of the Royal Navy, but he does persuade them to to kind of disarm and stay there. Um, so there's, there's no sort of bloodshed in, in Alexandria, but, um, that really is probably the last thing that converts um, that Vichy-French coastline that runs for hundreds and hundreds of miles from a borderline neutral coastline to a genuinely hostile coastline. But on balance, I think it probably is a a horrible but brave and probably the correct decision to neutralise the French fleet.
3: Yeah. Um, so, so I'm talking about uh, the, the the access partners of Germany. Like the First World War, the Germans are concentrating more on the North Sea and the Atlantic. So they're leaning on, uh, their southern ally, in this case, Italy, rather than Austria-Hungary, to pull their thumbs out and do something. And, um, yeah, hang on, what was I saying? Uh, so, but this in German interference actually works for, uh, works in the favor of the British with the, um, by using their Enigma machines.
1: Yeah, I mean that's 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 obviously that's the key to Matapan. Um, so yes, the, the, the Germans. It's interesting the German Italian relationship. It's 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 it starts as a relationship of equals and it rapidly doesn't become one. Um, but I think again we need to remember at this early stage of the war it is still pretty much a relationship of equals. But it has to be said that the Germans and Adolf Hitler in particular don't really care about the Mediterranean. They're not massively interested in it um it's seen as an opportunity to keep the british fighting they think the italians can probably pound them in the, in the mediterranean there's some vague interest in in the opportunities that will open up if the north african coast is taken um but this is you know this is before the arrival of rommel and the, and the africa corps it's before any kind of german commitment in the mediterranean really um hitler is is oblivious to sea power and i think i think uh, we won't get onto this rabbit hole either, but I think that the, the German prosecution of the naval war is is, is inept fundamentally. So um, I, I think it's fair to say German leadership didn't really understand the nature of the, the Mediterranean theatre. I'm sure German sailors did, but Adolf Hitler certainly didn't understand it as a naval theatre. Um, he never really understood maritime supply lines at any point. So um, So it's left to the Italians. It, it's kind of seen as somewhere where they can go and do something vaguely useful, but it's not... It's not core to the Axis war effort. I think that's probably the German perception. But, yes, they do, um, they do make available Enigma. Um, and, of course, um, Bletchley Park has cracked Enigma, which leads us in effortlessly, Chris, to the run-up to the Battle of Matapan. But we should probably just mention
2: Taranto first, I, think. I was going to ask that because that's one I do know. <laughs> yes, you would. Yeah, Because, you know, there's planes and stuff in it. two of them, right? Yes. <laughs> well, I, I, I suppose less what happened at Toronto, but the effect of that attack and yeah, reasonable amount of damage to the, the Italian fleet there. What what sort of effect does that have with well, relationship with Germany it's, it's, and on the fleet itself?
3: It's,
1: it's the effect on the fleet itself is really interesting, and that's why when we look at Matapan, we're looking at the culmination, the end of a of a strategy that Cunningham has pursued. One of, one of, um, of risk and risk taking and aggression that culminates in Matapan. Matapan shouldn't be taken in isolation. So actually he, what he does is despite the, despite all this land based air, despite the, the greatly superior numbers of the Italian fleet, despite the hostile coastline and all this difficult operating environment, Cunningham takes the war to the enemy and he takes his fleet out the whole time aggressively. Um, it starts with Calabria with July 1940. Um, so there's this kind of, kind of fairly inconsequential action to to grace it with the name of a, of a of a battle is is perhaps a bit of an overstatement but again you know the the, the how does it end it ends really with a british battleship hitting an italian battleship at the extremely long range far longer than they had any right to expect and the italians are so shocked they they run for home um so that there's that but then he then he plans in november 1940 this astonishing um fleet air arm attack on the italians in their base in taranto and, um, we're obviously not doing a session on Toronto, but this is, this is such a key event. Um, it's, it's, you know, it does preempt Pearl Harbor. The Japanese do come and take a look afterwards. It's a very small force. It's a small, I can't remember the precise number, but it's uh, 20 odd swordfish torpedo bombers flown at night, it's supposed to be two aircraft carriers, but one of them has a problem with a catapult. So they're all flying off one ship. Um, and it's phenomenally successful. They go in at night into this defended base um the italians don't have radar and i think this is something that comes back time and time again if you want a really major limiting factor on the italians ability to operate it's their absence of radar um and they torpedo three italian battleships, um two of which are eventually refitted and returned to service i think the third one never returns to service they are the older ships um so that again like the queen elizabeth they're kind of modernized First World War battleships. But it's a heck of a blow. It's, it's, you know, imagine, imagine somebody coming into Portsmouth and, and torpedoing the Royal Navy. It's, it's like Gunter Prien and, and, Scapa Flow up here in Orkney with, with U-47. So huge blow. It forces the Italians to move north a bit further away from where things are happening. Um, and that's the, the context of going into Matapan. Is the Italians have had these, this one kind of skirmish that didn't go the way that they would have had every right to assume it would have gone. And then this catastrophic attack on, on their home base, um, which the British get away with really, really incredibly low losses. Um, just a, a few airmen for three battleships is, is incredible actually. So that's the, the balance of power is shifting. Italian confidence is shaken and that's how they go into Matapan.
0: I, I, I have
2: I have other questions, but we'll do a different episode on that one. So <laughs> yeah, definitely. because that that is that is fascinating, and and those sort of tentacles that lead on to to December nineteen forty one as well. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, the Japanese the Japanese naval attaché literally goes down and has a look. So um, I don't think it's I think it's a massive overstatement when people say you know that, that, that they didn't think of Pearl Harbor until that happened. But I think it made them, he's certainly sending signals back, and I think it made them go, do you know what? This can work. You can actually attack a defended base, which was, was already the kind of direction of travel that the Japanese, who had very, very capable naval aviators, different subject, but, um, yeah, it's
2: it, it an influence, no doubt. It, I, yeah. I've heard it termed as loading the Pearl Harbour dice a bit. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. It, yeah. it, yeah. it, it And I mean, you can, tra- you can
1: trace this back even further because the British are going to do this to the Germans in 1918, so there's a whole yeah. plan to take the Germans in Wilhelmshaven with, with purpose-built torpedo-carrying aircraft um, and aircraft carriers to do exactly the same thing. So it's 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 interesting the way that thinking evolves.
3: Let's get again, the did this I'm, in I'm, 90- I'm going to
2: move us on here because I want to get yeah, yeah. on on onto this because yeah. I know I know you two. <laughs> this, is a, this is a rabbit hole we won't get back from No, no. as soon as i heard the first world war mentioned i knew we were in no trouble. no 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 not <laughs> doing nothing <about> war. <laughs> <laughs> so so let's 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 get let's get to mass mass pan here what are, what are the fleets what are the sort of yeah. opposing forces here because that's it's not something that's on my list but what sort of ships are we talking about? we've already mentioned sort of older battleships But what are the sizes of the the opposing forces? So um, can we just do very quickly the immediate
1: strategic context, which I think is important, um, and then we can do that. Um, So by this point, the British have got embroiled in Greece. Um, And again, we won't go down the rabbit hole of the Greek campaign, but they are in Greece. Um, This requires maritime supply lines to support British forces in Greece. Um, And the Royal Navy obviously has to protect and escort those supply lines. So the strategic context is the Italians, the Germans, are basically pushing the Italians to attack these British convoys to Greece. Um, That kind of relationship between the partners is already starting to shift a bit. Um, And so there's signal traffic instructing them to do this. And on the 25th of March 1941, the the relevant ultra signal pops up, um, saying that the Italians are planning to attack um, or threat at least a, a convoy to Greece. So that's the context the fleets are interesting so the the Italians have these i mean the, the core now of the italian fleet is their their new battleships so vittoria veneto um roma's not built yet but they, these are very very modern these are their latest latest fast battleships um again that slight italian kind of you know slightly underarmored but well well armed um very fast um, very modern warships no radar going to keep saying that again and again and again because it's so important and then um, they have this very large force of, of modern um, uh, mostly light but light and heavy cruisers um, again very capable slightly slightly under armored but rather fast and, and well-armed ships it's a modern fleet it doesn't have integral aviation but they don't need it because they've got land-based air why would you bother um they, they don't visualize fighting a war outside the mediterranean that is the italian navy's theater of operations and i think again we we should remember that they have constructed a fleet that's well designed for what they intend it to do against that you have the royal navy's mediterranean fleet so at the core of that are um these these queen elizabeth class modernized first world war dreadnoughts and so one of them is modernized uh, so you've got war is out there, she's, you know, we could do a whole session on Warspite, couldn't we, Chris? She's the ship that did everything, and the little ship that could. Um, but she's, little, you know, she has been modernised. Not so little, but, <laughs> but very, you know, very capable, but an old lady, um, but, but modernised. You've got Valiant, which hasn't been modernised. And I think, uh, now, remind me, Chris, it's one of the our class, isn't it? It's the third one. Is it Resolution?
3: Yeah, yeah, because I think Revenge was in the Pacific. Yeah, so, Resolution. um,
1: we've got three old battleships fundamentally, and again,
2: um, mixed force of crews. Oh, no, Barham, Barham. I'm sorry, you're right. Yeah, yeah Barham. Barham. Yeah. I, because I, I looked that up because it's, it's not long after that other stuff happens to Barham, which we, you're right. Watch. Barham yeah. goes, yeah, yeah, bad yeah. Things happen to Barham. Yeah,
1: so that's the fleet. Um, but it's, um, it's a coherent unit it's fought successfully. And I think that's really important. You know, they've been, they've been operational since the war began. They've been doing things. Um, they are incredibly well led. They do have the advantage of radar um, and they have this in- amazing intelligence advantage. So they know what the Italians are planning, um, which enables an aggressive, capable commander like Cunningham to, to really make best use of that kind of
2: intelligence. I, I've been, I've been Googling while we've been chatting. There's not <laughs> another ship because, Ajax is there as well. And she's, she's, she's not long from another very. So yeah, she's, I mean, she's, engagement. she's the
1: River Plate ship. And I think that's, it's always interesting, isn't it? These, these ships pop up, you know, again and again. Um, she's at Normandy as well. So, you know, the, the, long service and actually, yeah, the massive aside, but all these interesting debates that happen now about, oh, they should have kept this ship or that ship. These ships were worn out by the end of the war. Most of them have been hit multiple times. They had steamed unfeasible numbers of sea miles. They were absolutely worn out. So, um, you know, that's why most of them were scrapped. They had to shrink the Navy, but these were also broken. I mean, they're pre-war ships and they've been driven very, very, very hard. So, you know, all of the First World War era ships are absolutely finished by about 44, really.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring.
1: Yeah. Sorry, I was waiting. Was shame, I, I, this
2: is <laughs> this 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 is over to you now, Chris. I, that that's the extent of my knowledge on this from from googling ship names. That <laughs> Sorry, I've, my I've
0: mind started talking. wondering about old warships. <laughs> I knew this was going to happen.
2: This is staying in the edit because this is basically every time we get you on this show. It's 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 all boaty things <laughs> in your eyes. <old laughs> <No, no, no. laughs>
3: it's been. I have had a really bad twenty four hours. So reminiscing about old warships is is, nice. is just. <laughs> <laughs> but, but okay. also the um, the british had the aircraft carrier formidable as well which is quite it it did,
1: and that's that's the first phase of the battle so you know carrier aviation is all the british have and i think that's um it's really interesting it's, it's not so much having carriers it's the way you use them because that what what carrier aircraft are never as good as land-based aircraft that's that's pretty much a truism um if you put a swordfish up against a Mackey or a Messerschmitt 109 or even a little Fiat CR-42, CR it should shoot it down. Um, but it's what the British have. So Cunningham uses this carrier aviation aggressively all the time, even though he knows that there's never as many carrier aircraft and they tend to be less, certainly less um Capable than than their land-based equivalents because they're designed for a different purpose and and they you know range is important being able to slam it down on the deck of a ship is quite important uh, that speed maneuverability perhaps gets sacrificed for that so you know he says he, he's got formidable and that really kicks off Matapan because he um, he knows he's got this balanced fleet he knows he's an aggressive commander and he knows what the Italians are attempting to achieve and he has radar. So um, the first phase of Massapan, really 28th of March, um, the the British fleet comes out. The British fleet looks for and finds the Italians and you get, um, you know, God, the Italians must have been sick of swordfish. Right. You get uh, um, a carrier aviation attack on the Italian fleet. This damages one of the Italian battleships um, and it also crucially damages the cruiser Polar. Um, quite seriously actually um, and and she 's stopped um, it, it disables the ship, and she can 't move so that is a blow for the italians and I think probably again hindsight's a dangerous thing, so i 'm being quite careful here. I think what the Italians do next I think has to be marked up as as, a, as an error for me, even though setting aside hindsight the Italians then um Allocate a force of three cruisers and two destroyers to go and essentially rescue the polar. So the rest of the Italian fleet heads for home. These this force is taken to find the polar, stick around her while she gets her engines going in and then bring her in safely. And for me, I've thought about this a lot actually. For me, that is that's the action of that shiny toy syndrome that actually, you know, I think. Probably the Royal Navy or even the Germans might have scuttled their ship in those circumstances. Sacrifice yeah. the one because it's just an asset that you can dispose of and get the crew off and get home because you've, you've had a bit of a drubbing and you, you know, or leave the entire battle fleet there and say, right, come on, bring it on. We'll fight a battle around this cruiser, but they don't. They send this diminished force. Um, but there is something of a, uh, let's not go there down the jutland rabbit hole chris but there is a parallel here that has to be alluded to the italians don't think the british will fight at night which is really interesting because that's exactly what the british do at jutland they think the germans yeah. won't fight at night and the germans are very capable at yeah. night the british have learnt their jutland lessons and they have trained and trained at night fighting precisely because of what happened in may 1916 so they are very capable night is no deterrent for the british a lot of what they're doing and their tactics and their techniques are lifted straight from the Imperial German Navy um, and, and what they did in, in Jutland. So Cunningham's not phased by the concept of, of fighting a night action. He's got great intel. He stays out there and he's um, he knows that the polar is there. He knows where he needs to look um, and he goes looking for the polar. He doesn't know that the other three, there's other other Italian forces there or he doesn't know precisely where it is, but he goes out looking for a night action. And when he finds them, it's absolutely devastating and brutally short. And that's why there there, there isn't too much to say about what actually happens. Um Cunningham finds them with, with three battleships, <clears throat> three fifteen inch gun battleships, in the middle of the night. He uses radar to find them. He finds, you know, there's one stopped cruiser, then there's another, another three cruisers, and then there's two destroyers, and they are catastrophically outgunned. Um, and what the British do is they, they turn their searchlights on them, which brings us effortlessly to, to Prince Philip, um, which is exactly what the Germans do to the British at Jutland. They turn their searchlights on the ships and they blow them out of the water in the space of minutes uh, because a cruiser is simply the, the, the Italians are caught unawares. Um, there is really no time for them to react. They're catastrophically outgunned. They're in a very vulnerable position and they they are all sunk with horrendous loss of life. Um, and it's over in, I think, four minutes. Is it four minutes? I'm just checking now. Four or five minutes. It's in- incredibly quick. Um, and they lose well over, um, 2,000 sailors, 2,300 sailors killed and another thousand taken prisoner. Um, yeah. British lose one air crew, um, one swordfish that is shot down in that, that earlier phase of the battle. So it's hard to think of an example of a, of a more one-sided action. Actually, can't even cause it murder. Did, so, sorry, uh, did you just say four minutes? It's something yeah. like that. I'm just going to check the time, but it's incredibly quick. I mean, it's the searchlights <laughs> on, and you're talking about almost the heaviest caliber of naval guns that that exist.
3: <laughs>
1: going through at minimum range, Italian cruisers that have been designed for speed, not for armor, and and it's just it's ridiculous. It just they just blow them out of the water, and that's why there's so few survivors.
3: He, he brings his, Cunningham brings his three battleships straight into the Italian formation. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's like, driving like, like battleships destroyers. like destroyers. Yeah. Yeah. Just cuts them apart.
1: So there's nothing, um, there's no kind of, it's not Jutland. There's no tactical finessing where we can talk about runs to the north and runs to the south and, uh, you know, all these different phases and complexities. There is no complexity with, with Matapan. The complexity comes in the strategic bit beforehand. And, and Cunningham placing his fleet in the right place at the right time and knowing what to do with it. Um, but once he's there, it's, it's, it's incredibly brief.
2: So to use a boxing analogy, over the preceding months, Cunningham sort of jabbed his opponent into the corner. Yeah. And then he's just yeah. got yeah. him with a, a, a perfect... And base. this is the
1: knockout, and it is a, a knockout blow to the Italian Navy's morale that they never really recover from. Um, it, it is important that it's that, the jabs count as well, um, you know, even Calabria, but certainly Taranto and then Matapan. But it's the final blow that that they've their confidence is shot. They've lost ships. Um, they've had a real blow and they do come out again, but they're, they're not in any meaningful way. And their confidence is really, really, really damaged, especially with the battle fleet and the political confidence in using that battle fleet as a tool has almost evaporated. <laughs>
3: They, they were quite unfortunate as well in the in the first phase of the battle. The um, the gunnery was really inaccurate as, against um, the British cruiser squadron that they sighted. They fired yeah, off yeah, yeah. hundreds so, of shells, and I don't think they did any really da- any damage at all.
1: I don't think they hit anything. Um, and actually, that's a, that's an interesting. You're right. I should have, we should have talked about that a little bit. It's an interesting part of the battle. It's the only sighting between surface ships. Um, the British cruisers are handled very well, actually, and I think there's, you know, there's that, that gelling of the Mediterranean fleet that is kind of functioning as a, as a well-oiled machine. I think that's quite interesting, and I think the Italians kind of don't really achieve that, that sense of, of different bits of the fleet pulling together. But yeah, Italian gunnery is awful, absolutely awful, and uh, I don't know whether that's a function of, of, Inadequate training, or um, they certainly haven't had the operational experience that the British have had at this point in the war. I mean, you know, warspite has been in in Narvik. You know, these yeah. these ships have done things before, um, even if it's shelling the French. You know, they've 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 they've, they've had that kind of operational experience that's crucial. Um, the Italian battleships are, v- are very new, and I think that's that's that doesn't get taken into account often enough. They're fairly recently commissioned, but um, it's still terrible gunnery. Can't defend it
3: i suppose as well that whereas like you're saying um our our naval officers had had experience in the first world war and the italian naval experience in the first world war was against the austrians and they they did fight but not the same level as british officers were fighting against the you know
1: no and again it's it's there isn't a battle fleet action is there and i think that's that's you know they, they haven't really handled their battle fleet in action because they haven't had the opportunity again it's, it's smaller Italian ships and and there's, there's quite a lot of stuff going on in the adriatic but but not this kind of big fleets facing each other off so it's, it's you know they've, they've really got to learn it and um, um and they're not really they're not really prepared for for war it's kind of Italy's been you know foot in foot out of the axis camp right up almost to the last minute it's it's this is not ready. They're not ready for this. And, and the, the, I think in one of the, one of my books I use, there's this peerless ruthlessness about the Royal Navy. The Royal Navy has been doing this for hundreds of years. So it's, you know, Cunningham famously said after Crete about it takes, takes, you know, three, three, three years to build a ship and 300 years to build a tradition. Um, the, the Royal Navy knows how to do this. That's why they're so intensely frustrated after the First World War because they haven't had this opportunity and they are utterly ruthless. You know, there's no, there's no sentimentality about you know, punching smaller ships down and, and with horrendous loss of life, that's what it takes to do the job and they're, they're, they're very good at it. Falkland's
3: 1914. <laughs>
1: well, yeah, precisely. Um, you know, that, that that kind of tradition of victory, that's that's what it takes to have a tradition of victory, really, is is the ability to be unsentimental um, and, and and then they're absolutely not sentimental about this. And it works. And it's interestingly the only thing, if, if they hadn't won Matapan if If that had gone the other way, I genuinely think the Mediterranean would have been lost actually, because if you add in the other factors that come in with you know the support of German air power um which which gets very, very capable um it 's hard enough for the Mediterranean fleet to survive the next year, which is brutal i mean we 've already referenced Matt you know Barham sunk by a u boat horrific losses off Crete, absolutely horrific. I mean, they only have, I think, two cruisers and three destroyers that aren't damaged or sunk by the end of Crete. I mean, they're really, really hammered. And that's that's a battle that they're fighting against German air power. If the Italian fleet had been involved in that at all, that was the Italian's opportunity. It would have been to come in when the Royal Navy was being brutalised off Crete. Um, and they didn't. And that's because of Matapan and Taranto, because their confidence is shot, their ships are damaged, and their base too far away. So... It, it really allows the Mediterranean fleet to survive the brutal experience of Crete.
3: Would, would it be a bit of a stretch to say that this is possibly the most conclusive Royal Navy fleet action of the second world war between fleets rather than individual German warships? Yeah.
1: So that's a great question, Chris. And I've, yeah, in the conventional sense, yes. I've, I've argued before that actually, I think, um, I actually think Norway is the fleet action that never gets recognized as a fleet action, mm. um, because it's spread over a long period of time and geographically dispersed. But, but actually that's when the German fleet takes on the home fleet and is trashed as a consequence. But I agree, Matapan is much more clearly its two fleets at sea at the same time in the same space. Um, and in that sense, possibly yes, for, for the European theater, I wouldn't want to drag in I wouldn't want to upset American listeners by dragging in, you know, what is late golf, all this kind of stuff. It gets quite messy out there and I don't have the understanding. But certainly in, in, in this theatre of operations in, in, in the European... That's, that's why I said Royal well, Navy. Definitely, yes. Yeah,
2: for sure. It's it's fascinating to me as a as a sort of interested observer with very little knowledge of, of, of any of these boaty types. Of, um, just... When you look at what happens next, as you're you're alluding to then, especially with Malta, the North African campaigns that come up, there's this, what, 18-month window when things are, you know, we've alluded to it, they're being horribly, horribly bad. But then it... The Mediterranean is just a wash. We're shipping again, isn't it? It's, it's
1: yeah, and it's you know, it, it's such a dangerous time. And I think one of the, one of I think we're all prone to it as historians. Actually, one of the we tend to get in a little bubble and we look at it's not just going badly in the Mediterranean in that period. And if you think of it as a world war, the navy's having a torrid time, you know, all over the world during that period. Um, I don't think, as I said, they would have survived that if they hadn't already neutralized both the French fleet and the Italian fleet um which meant they only had the, the one foe which was the german air force and god knows that was hard enough but yeah it's really it's a really tough time and they they nearly lose it i mean within an ace of being battered into submission and and the the land campaign in north africa is utterly dependent on it and i think you know with all due deference to our military colleagues i think they they always ignore the naval dimension when they're talking about the desert war and yeah. the desert war ebbs and flows based on what's going on at sea and that's why maltas important Malta's important. We, we, we tend to think of Malta being important for its own sake. And there's a kind of, there's this almost religious thing around Malta. Malta's important because it's a striking base and it's right on the convoy route from, um, for the, for the Italians to try and convoy, um, Supplies and troops to North Africa. That's why Malta's important. It's not. It's not a staging. You know, the convoys to Malta to keep Malta going. It's all about getting the strike aircraft and submarine flotillas operational again, and the small cruiser force. You know, when those forces in Malta are neutralized, and they are on a couple of occasions, then the Germans and Italians find it an awful lot easier to to supply their North African campaign, and things start to go quite well there. Because I think that the you know, a lot is talked about the, the the Germans and Italians, or the Germans in particular, not necessarily resourcing North Africa that well. The British don't resource North Africa that well either because they're keeping so much at home. So you know, it's it's a, it's kind of a Cinderella campaign a little bit. Um, so control of the sea and getting what you
2: can there is is so important because then you have all the politics with Harwood and Coningham and Tedder and and oh, everybody yeah. in, oh, in yeah. 42, course. and and that just spirals all out of. A lot of good sense. It, really. it's,
1: yeah, there's the, difficult the, the difficult relationships. I
2: think that's, <laughs> fair to
3: say, <laughs> but, but then, like, like we were saying with Britain, that the, we we had the alternate resupply method of and we um, can go all the way
1: around, But there's there's really interesting calculations about that's literally like losing ships taking that route because your merchant hulls are tied up for so much longer. It's yeah. it's almost like. Winning the, you know, helping donuts win the tonnage war, and and it's one of the things I think that again, people make this argument. It makes me so cross again because of this land focus on things. There's always that kind of deference to the American argument that the Mediterranean is a waste of time, um, and you know, it's a it's a diversion, and it's all about British colonial interests and all the rest of it. And you know, I think that what's always ignored is that the phenomenal amount of shipping that you're able to save. By having that direct supply line and you can communicate directly with the indian ocean and what's going on in, in the far east um, without going around the cape and that alone for me justifies the mediterranean i'm not sure it justifies the, the whole extent that the italian campaign went but it certainly justifies north africa it justifies sicily and it justifies southern italy and then it does become an allied lake then and then they can use it properly and actually the impact on Shipping availability for, for Normandy and all this kind of stuff is, is, is phenomenal. So it, it's an important theatre because it's a maritime theatre.
3: Yeah, right. I mean, uh, the importance it just- of Suez can be seen just from the, the evergreen the other year blocking the yeah. canal. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Another example which I like to keep coming back to is when the Koenigsberg sank the city of Winchester in 1914. She was bringing the first of the tea harvest from India. And so the Admiralty shut the Red Sea, shut the Suez Canal and said, no one's allowed through until we can find this German cruiser. And London runs out of tea. Yeah, that's
1: I mean, we can laugh about it, but it's so true. And I think that's because so much history is written by land focused people. We tend to forget this stuff. Um, that actually, you know, shipping and routes and trade routes and they're, they're the, they're the constants, as you say, right up to the ever given or whatever it was called, you know, a, a few months ago. So, um, it is important. It is, is a dramatic effect. And, and coming back to how you started this bit, Matt, we, we, they did
2: nearly lose it. They could have lost it. It wasn't a given. Just, just out of pure interest in time relative, how much longer does it take to go around the Cape? In weeks, months, sort uh, of, sort if of you, months,
1: so if you're going, it is probably three two to three weeks to go around the Cape. Um, depends on what ship and how fast it's going and where precisely it's going to. But if you were going, if you're going from Jib round and then up into you know to the, the Red Sea basically to supply the North African armies, that's probably three weeks, I think. Um, mm-hmm. and then you know through the Mediterranean, you can do it in two days you know, if people are shooting at you, it's, it's harder, but it's, you know, you can, you can do two, three days, even with slow ships. So it's a huge, huge difference. And that's then, you know, that's then a ship that's discharged and is available immediately again to carry something else somewhere else in the world. Um, whereas the others are at sea for two to three weeks. So it's a huge impact, absolutely huge impact. We we were chatting. Then you've got about the f-
3: logistics of the amount of fuel. Uh,
1: that's too. Yeah. I mean, all those other calculations.
2: We were chatting about him a bit earlier, and Nick and I were chatting about him before we recorded. But let's let's mention Prince Philip, um, because uh, he's he's very much <laughs> remembered as yeah, you know, I guess the Queen consort really. Don't, but his career was a good one by all accounts, as 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 a navy man would go. You know, he's we got know here saying he was mentioned in dispatches for Massapan. So it's he's. He's doing the job and he's doing it well. He's he's not just a stuffed uniform.
1: I think we absolutely should, because I think he deserves that respect, actually. And it was interesting for me. um, I think I was saying to you, I did a lot of obit stuff when when he passed. And it kind of made me reconsider him, actually, because I'd always been I'd never really thought about his naval career. And it made me kind of go and look at his naval career. And it's a proper naval career. He's a genuine fighting sailor and he deserves that respect, actually. So he is a baby midshipman um on Valiant at Matapan, um, in charge of one of the ships' searchlight batteries. So, you know, he's there, it's his team that are putting those lights on and flooding those Italian cruisers with light and enabling um the British to blow them out of the water. So um he gets to mention the dispatches, which is um people think of it as a gallantry award. It's it can be, but sometimes it's just for you know capability and competence. He's done his job really well. And they want to recognize that. So it's a, it's a great start really for, you know, someone who's still kind of right on the bottom rung of his naval career. Um, by the end of the war, he's commanding destroyers. So, you know, he's done really well. A lot of officers don't achieve that. Um, he's, he's commanding destroyers on the East Coast. Um, so he's, you know, he's progressed from the absolute junior rank, junior officer's rank to command of his own ship. But well, you can only imagine. Um, someone who was committed to the Navy as he was, how excited that, that must have made him. What a, what a great moment that was. And actually, I think then we have to think he really did sacrifice what could have been a really good career, I think. Um, he's generally well thought of as a very capable and, and, you know, efficient, good officer with the right level of aggression and the right level of, um, of, um, competence. I think he could have gone a long way. I, I said, before I'd, I'm not sure he would have reached the very top I think he was a little bit too frank speaking and blunt um to have gone into those more political senior roles I can't see he would ever have made first sea lord but I think he would have got to flag rank I think he was very good at what he did and he had that kind of combat experience that he got very early in his career that I think would have taken him a long way so huge respect actually yeah he was a proper fighting sailor
3: it was, uh, it was something that we came up when, when we did when we did the history hack bit tree for him um we we had to do is looked at his naval career and I, 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 my, I was brought up a staunch republican by my grandparents and um I was really surprised that that all the medals um that he was wearing weren't ceremonial
1: no I mean, and he them, he just, them all yeah. and
3: it was an amazing um career
1: yeah and I think a shame that actually you know It would have been interesting to see what, what would have folded out. He might, he might have been one of those officers who got a bit bored when peacetime came along. I think that's the only thing he, you know, there's wartime sailors and there's peacetime sailors. And that's the only thing he might well have just thought this is a bit dull now, just wearing a white uniform and inspecting stuff, you know, but you know, career came along. He probably would have been a more senior captain by the time career came along. It's really interesting to speculate. But um, yeah, it was uh, it was uh, it was really really quite a nice feeling to do that kind of obit stuff for him. I think he, he really deserved it.
2: Well, there we go. We we've made this podcast last over ten times the length of the battle. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy the edit. <laughs> this this has been fascinating. I've 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 really enjoyed this. So I just want to say thank you, Nick. That was that really was really welcome. Good and, really and Chris, it. of course, but yeah, we can't yes. give him too much credit. <laughs> <laughs>
3: no, it's been great. I've been looking forward to this all week.
1: Yeah, I have really really enjoyed it, guys. It's been a lot of fun. Um, we should do
2: some more for sure. What, what what are you working on at the moment? If you're able to to tease our listeners, yeah. From-
1: so I'm I'm writing this um, I'm writing this book about the the Battle of the Seine Bay, which is um, is basically the Normandy campaign as viewed from the sea. Um, which is my my, forgotten sailors and my great obsession As probably came across in this, that, that maritime dimension always gets forgotten. Um, and I think, I think nobody's, well, I know because my publishers tell me nobody's ever looked at Normandy as a naval battle. So this is, this is from the water. Um, and it's, it starts before operation Neptune and D-Day and it goes on beyond it. So it's, um, it's that battle to secure the channel, um, and, and make it a, a space that, that's safe to operate in. So really kind of a bit like this Matapan story, really the Royal Navy stamping its dominance on the channel prior to D-Day, delivering D-Day and then keeping the army sustained and supported and supplied, um, after D-Day and, and long after Neptune finishes as well. Actually, Neptune's just a change in, in command responsibility. It means nothing for the sailors. They're still doing it. Um, so I've ended it with, um, the capture of Le Havre in September um 44 which is when the fighting really does move out up channel and out of the same bay then so so yeah i'm really excited about it i'm i'm a little bit over-researched i've got vast amounts of material that i'm currently kind of structure um prior to putting metaphorical pen to paper but yeah it's a great story i know the publishers are quite keen to um start talking about it in may because i'm um i've got then it'll come out or it'll be submitted next may um may 23 so it'd be a good time to to do something on that and i might
2: might even have my head straight by then (laughs) we'll we'll, we'll book we'll book you in for that now
1: yeah that'd be cool thank
2: you so much oops sorry man
3: i was saying i'll keep my diary empty
2: yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) i'll put it in the planner we'll know what you're doing yeah
1: good stuff (laughs) thank you so much yeah plenty of other things always happy to do it it's been really enjoyable so um, yeah lots of things lots of things to talk about we'll have you back don't you worry Chris we should do some First World War stuff at some point but not yeah uh,
3: I'll I'll see if we can get another uh, I'll badger badger the guys about doing another Boaty Week
1: yeah that would be great let's do
2: Boaty Week that would be fantastic another (laughs) Boaty Week oh (laughs) Uh,
3: Alina uh, she's going to shoot me if she hears this but Alina got away with it last time because we were going to we were going to subject her to a week of Boaty Podcasts (laughs) She wasn't well. She couldn't do it for some reason. So she, 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 she owes me. Wasn't <laughs> well.
1: <laughs> have you, um, have you ever done Norway? I'd really love to do Norway because I think it's hugely misunderstood. Actually, and and that's a my my argument with Norway is always that actually it's Norway that saves Britain from invasion in the summer of 1940. It's not the Battle of Britain uh, yeah. because the, the Germans haven't got a fleet by the end of it.
2: So that's quite a nice one to do. I, I, th- I think we do need to do Norway. I very one of my favourite days out flying was around Narvik. Oh, really? Um, Yeah. Beautiful crystal clear day. You see right down to the bottom, to the stuff that's still there on the bottom.
3: All those German uh, destroyers. Do
2: you know, I've tried so hard
1: to get broadcasters. I think three or four times I've tried to get broadcasters, including people I know really well, to go and do Norway, to go and do Narvik, because it's got everything. It's got visible wrecks that you don't have to dive to, and it's got incredible landscape and... You know, there's some quite interesting stuff ashore and there's so much you could film there and they never want to do it and I think it's just money. I think it's because Norway is so expensive to get to and film in. They don't want to do it. It's, it's yeah. the bar bill. It's always the bar yeah, bill. Yeah, 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 that'll be the one.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> right,
1: Three, let's, two, let's wrap this up
2: and let's do the, do the goodbyes and we can keep chatting. So, yeah. <laughs> Nick, thank you. If people want to follow you, how can they get in touch and see what you're doing? Uh, best way is on my Twitter, I
1: think. So it's at Nick Hewitt4 on Twitter. Um, i very happy to talk to people there. My DMs should be open if people want to message me, but nothing abusive.
2: <laughs> we, we might send you the odd thing. Oh, you can, yeah. Thank you so much, and we will definitely have you back. It's been a pleasure. Uh,
1: thanks very much, Matt. Thanks, Chris. Nice to see you both.
2: Our
3: incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section thank you so much for your continued support we really appreciate our listeners and supporters so make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book